This is an unusual episode of the BRFCS podcast because I'm going to be um, sort of like, well, I suppose being interviewed as opposed to doing an interview because I have as a guest today John Jordan, who is writing a book on Blackburn Rovers, particularly the 1994-95 title season. John, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about your project. Oh, thanks, Ian. Well, yeah, my name's John. As you mentioned, I'm from Blackburn. Um, born there a long time ago, but no longer live in the town or the UK. I don't live overseas at the moment. Um, and as a job, I, I write about football and sports for various media outlets. And um, I've written a few books in the past, but the, the next one I'm working on right now is, uh, you know, the one closest to my heart, and that's about the Rovers winning the title in 95 and the build-up to that and talking to players past and you know and coaches and other people around at the time and in the mid-90s early 90s and trying to get you know an overall feel for what happened and just look back on you know what was a fantastic and memorable time for all Rovers fans and hopefully try and tell the story in an interesting and meaningful way that people can enjoy and um you know, it's 25 years in next May, and hopefully the book will come out at the end of this year, where I start of next, and can be a part of you know, the, the, the evolving history of you know those fantastic times. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure uh, we'll get you back on nearer the time when it's published. Thanks very much. And tell us, and you'll have, you'll have, I'm sure, a number of people who remember that season will be wanting to buy it. But uh, thanks for that. Let's get on with the interview then. How long have you been away from Blackburn? Almost about oh, from Blackburn. Well, I left properly when I was in university in '91, and then I came. I came back about a year, and now it's the year we won the title, which is a good, a good timing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, I never will again. I think it's safe to say. Yeah, probably. Well, yes, probably. Um, yeah. So after that, I've never lived there. I mean, so it's been, I spent about one year there in that twenty. Um, I grew up there, I left when I was 18, 19, but since then, in the kind of next you know, 20, 27, 28 years, I've only spent a year there. But I still go back, my dad still lives there. So when I go back home to England, then, you know, Blackburn's still the base. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, going down to Ewood, and I, I've, I've taken my kids down there a couple of times, but I've passed two or three times I've been home, it's not been in the games, and one was cancelled and postponed. Oh, and that's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> the last game, the first game, I took my wife to. My wife's from South Korea. We met in Korea, yeah. and we it was Steve Keane's second game in charge. Oh, Box, <laughs> Boxing Day at home to Stoke. It was it was really cold. There was snow everywhere, and, that, and we lost two 0 and, and that was that's, that's my claim to fame. I saw Steve Keane's first game at West Ham, right, in charge of Blackburn, and I also saw his first game. In Singapore, went his first game when he was manager in Singapore as well. And that, did you have a keen out banner for old times sake? Yeah, I should have done. But I said, try to. I did have his number for a while, but he never, he never answered. <laughs> I wonder so, why. Yes. Yeah, I should have sold it on the streets of Blackburn. I might have got about a decent <laughs> price for it, probably. Oh, as, um, as I, I mentioned in, in in the message, through a, a friend of mine, he owns a, well, a guy I got to know owns a publishing company. In Liverpool, called um, I can't pronounce actually, De Coubertin Books. Oh, yes, after Pierre de Coubertin, I presume. Yes, exactly. And they do a lot of books on, um, especially Northwest Sport, Liverpool. They did like Howard Kendall's autobiography, Neville Southall's. So they did quite stuff on a lot of Northwest football as well. And then he he published a book, um, which we talked about it a few years ago, maybe right, something about the Rovers. We said, well, we'll wait and see, wait and see. And then he, they published a book about three or four years ago about Newcastle 
um, the season after when they almost won the title. Um, and that did well, I think, for them. So then we thought we talked properly about, or oh, maybe it's time to do something on the Rovers, especially because, you know, the 25th anniversary next year um, might be a good time to do it. And it's kind of now, it's starting to become history, isn't it, really? It sounds strange, but it is. No, I think I think the point's well made. There's um, yeah. there's a couple of podcasts that um, that broadcast regularly on Rovers issues. The um, the BRFCS one, which I'm behind, right. and then there's another one, which is the 1875 pod, and we've become quite friendly with the guys that do that over the years. But they're, much, they're definitely much, much, much younger than, shall we right. say, the, the core presenting panel that does the BRFCS one. And it is fascinating when we get together or when, when they guess an pods and things like that to to have those conversations about and we're it's, it's almost i can remember those days where you you sit on your granddad's lap and you're like tell me about your childhood it's a bit <laughs> like that you know what was it like then to win the league and you yeah. suddenly realise you're talking to someone who wasn't born, who actually maybe just barely remembers the Worthington Cup triumph. Right. And it just throws everything into sharp focus. Where you sit down, sit down, son. Yeah, make yourself yes. a drink. This could this could be a long conversation. Maybe tell your story. But trying to trying to explain and put it into context today would be similar to let's say that Guardiola um, resigns in March, and then takes over at Blackburn in October. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's that kind of thing and starts bringing with him players that we we, we never thought we'd, we'd access and we, we'd have no problems with the finances that would all be sorted and he sort of you put it into that context and and you know the, that generation sort of like the, the 15 to 25 year olds look at you and sort of say well you know was was kenny dalglish that big a name at the time yes he was yes he was i mean and that's something i've written about already in the book is you know people forget he was probably the biggest figure in british football wasn't he, he was this is before Ferguson won the league or anything like that. And I, I mean, it's, I remember when he resigned for Liverpool, how big that news was. I remember he, listening to it. I remember going upstairs to tell my brother because he was just huge. And yes, oh, it's a so massive I mean, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that Liverpool Everton Cup tie that tipped him over the edge. I mean, it was it was an extraordinary game unfolding in an mm. extraordinary way. And then the the, you know, the fallout and the ramifications from it. Yeah, if you'd said to me at that time, well, it, you know, in six or seven months' time, yes. that guy will be managing your club. Yeah. It was just unthinkable. Oh. When we won the title on the last day of the season, like in the way that we did, it felt a bit like winning promotion at Wembley, the way we did. We, in that, at the time, it was very, very stressful when well, we could have done it weeks before. But looking back, it was quite a dramatic and fantastic way to win. I mean, would you agree with that? Was it, was, is it better to win in such a dramatic fashion or just get it done earlier and calmer and more stress-free? I'd rather we won on the day, um, yeah, because I think true. one of the charges that's always like thrown back at us is we won it because of the failures of others. Yeah, because people will naturally focus on that final day and say, "Well, hey, yes. had Ludek McCloskey not played the game of his life, mm. Man, yeah, ninety-nine times out of hundred, Man United would have won that game." But this was yes. the hundredth time, and they didn't. What people will forget is that you know at the league, and then it was over forty-two games. So yeah, yeah, the the luck ebbs and flows over a season, and that old cliche about it evening itself out. Yeah, if that had been the first game of the season, and United had only come away from West Ham with a point, it, it would nobody would ever have remarked about that game. But because of the the, the way that everything and the narrative was sort of like piecing together right. on the day, when we scored first, I thought we were going to win. I genuinely thought that ah oh, Liverpool. They're really not up for this. We've scored first. Yeah, this is going to sort itself out. And then when they equalised, you just had that horrible feeling, that sinking feeling in your stomach. Yes. You think, 
there's no way this team's going to score again. And the second goal was kind of irrelevant, particularly at the point that it was scored. But I had it firmly fixed in my head that this was a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And if we didn't secure it that day, that was it. I, re- I really didn't think that we could ever right. consider bouncing back the next season. Even though we'd finished fourth and then second, it seemed to be a natural progression. But on that day, it was kind of like, well, this is it. If we don't do it today, that's it. You know, For a generation, there'll be these conversations about how close we came to winning the league and we never got back there again. So it, it, it felt... It was in incredibly enormously stressful i wasn't even at anfield i didn't even to be perfectly honest i didn't even try and get a ticket because i just didn't think i could cope with it i lived in birmingham at the time as well which didn't make it easy from a transport perspective but one of my work colleagues on the day sort of said um, oh they have um, plasma tvs at at the gym he said "Um, yeah we always show all the games that are on he said why don't you come down and, and watch it with me so i went went down there and the the room sort of like split into two uh, I would say that 98% of people didn't want Man United to win it, but 50% right. were watching one TV at one side of the gym and 50% right. were watching the TV at the other. And everyone kept looking over the shoulder, particularly in the last 10 minutes. And all you could hear from the other side of the room was these oohs and ahs. <laughs> it was like yes. uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the save after save. And I found myself watching the last probably two or three minutes of the... Well, I think... Um, I think their game finished first. I watched the last two or three minutes of the West Ham United game. Yeah, I thought, too. well, there's nothing happening at Anfield. Exactly. You know, th- th- this is yeah. where the, the title is going to be won or lost. But to see the crowd with the, you know, the transistor radios pressed against their ear suddenly start to cheer, and you sort of think, oh, this is absolutely extraordinary. But would I would I have preferred that that win over Newcastle won as the title? Yes categorically 100 percent, because my heart rate on that final day was just it it did feel a little anticlimactic i guess it being away from ewood as well there was that i think it's always nice to have secured it at home but that night when we beat newcastle to me that's that's the day that we won the title because obviously we didn't get another point so it it, that charge about it being down to the failures of others that's that's where it kind of comes back but uh we won it. That's all that matters, I guess. Yes, it, it would have been embarrassing, maybe almost humiliating, had we not won. Given we were what, eight points clear with you know, five or six games to go, it would have been maybe we'd never recovered from that. Perhaps. Well, no, now, I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the, the running. I, I sort of, I had a, a little quick flick through the results yeah. just before we, we started this this chat, just to remind myself. And I think I'd forgotten the abject horror of our sort of last five games. To, yeah. to win the title, having lost seven games, and three of those defeats were in the last five. Yes. Is, is quite something. But And again, by modern day standards, there's no way a team could expect to perform like that and win the league. Um, the, the benchmark has been raised in the last few years, right. you know, obviously, with uh, with the likes of Manchester City and pushing 100 points and all that sort of good stuff. But it, it, to me, that, that um, the, the 3-2 home defeat to Man City... Right. That's when the, the sort of the seeds of doubt first started. Yeah. We thought we're going to blow this. Yeah, if we win that, then we win easily. I think. Yeah, yeah. It was like, so that we we yeah. ebbed and flowed over the season. We'd had a good long run. Yeah. Uh, and then things started to get a bit hiccupy. And then February, March, we seemed to pull it back round. But then that night, you just sort of thought, "No, this is this isn't fair. <laughs> this yeah, this so, isn't on." <laughs> What's yes, going I, mean, on? I think. I know. Reading, rereading Alan Shearer's diary of the season not is not the most riveting read, but it's fence creosoting autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. On that day when the bus came into, because I think United it was Easter Monday, I think wasn't it? And United yeah, had played yeah. in the afternoon and drawn. Yeah. And then if Rovers 
win then basically that eight, you know, whatever, nine points clear with four games left. And, and he said he felt that the fans maybe were a bit too celebratory and yes. a bit too ex- expectant and maybe that was a problem. Perhaps I think everyone maybe thought well, you know, City were fighting for relegation and they've been that great. And we just turned up and we win and we took an early lead, but then winning 2-1 as well. But in the end, I've watched it again since. And in the second half, City played really well and deserved to win. When it gets to the back end of the season, uh, sides that are fighting at the bottom are capable of, of ending yes. all kinds of performances and results. And I think, yeah, there was a conflation of issues at that time where it seemed like, hang on a minute, we are actually going to do this. Uh, yeah, we're playing a team that's at the bottom. They're, they're as good as dead, kind of thing. Yeah, we'll just cruise to it. You score early. Oh, this is this is terrific. Uh, it's going to be a sort of yeah, a yeah. celebration tonight. This is this is absolutely amazing. But elite sport just dropping your performance by one or two percent, right? Just gives the opposition a way in. And yeah, it did feel a little bit like, oh yes, let's just sit back and like, oh hang on a minute, they've scored. Oh hang yeah. on a minute, they scored again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this wasn't in the script. What's going on? Oh, exactly. it's okay. We've got another one. Oh, hang on a minute. They've scored again, and it seemed that every time we just started to impose ourselves, that they, they went up the other side, the other end, and scored. And then, the, you know, I, I think there was just such a sense of deflation coming out of the ground. I can, I can remember that's when really the first seeds of doubt started to fall. I think so too. And then, you, so. then you're looking through the fix of this and sort of saying, well, we've got two home games, two away games. Ooh, but crikey, you know, West Ham away, that's never easy, as it proved to be right. for more than one opponent. Liverpool away, ooh, you know, you don't want to be going there and winning on the last day. Exactly. Think, oh, crikey, you know, we've, we've got to wrap this up and we've got to wrap it up good and proper. Uh, yeah, but of course it didn't pan out that way. Right. I mean, I think if you look at the last six games that we had, it was really tough running because it was Leeds away, of course, always difficult. Then we played... Um, three teams fighting against relegation, like I said, at the back end of the season. And especially, you know, that season, four teams went down, so it was a really fierce kind of relegation fight. Yes. You know, Palace and City and then West Ham. And I went to all those games, I remember West Ham, I knew we were going to lose at West Ham, I just knew. And the atmosphere was just fierce and just, they played out of their skins and we were poor. But just, so those three games, you know, one time early in the season, if we're playing well for confidence, like you say, we, we can win. But at that time, they're fighting for their lives. And then play Newcastle and then Liverpool. It's really, really tough final six games, I think. It, it certainly was. And I think it, it tested yeah. It tested the, um, the, well, I suppose the spirit of the fans every bit as bit, as bit of the players. Yes. I think the, yeah, the players clearly, for, for the vast, vast majority of them, they'd never been exposed to anything like right. this kind of scrutiny. Yeah, this was a side that was pulled together. Just just thinking back now, okay, we'd finished runners up the season before, but distant runners up. Yes, yeah, we, we, it's never in pressure, wasn't it? No, it, it was kind of we were always the ones doing the chasing, and yeah. then yeah, we, we lost at Coventry, I think it was, and then that was well, that's it. Never mind. Yeah. yeah, what what a spirited performance, but to have been out in front, and I think we saw as well the following season how those mind games, to use that horrible right. cliche, affected Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is difficult, yeah. I think, if you've got a team that's not got players in it that, that are used to the, that f- fiery hot cauldron of expectation and how to handle it. I suspect that squad learned an awful lot about themselves in that, that right. run in. Uh, and it made it, re- it made it all the more interesting for the neutral, all the more terrifying for, for a sure. Rovers fan. I think even even the, the, those last six games, the two games that we won, Palace and Newcastle at home, they were really, really nervy oh. victories, both of them. Um, hanging on in both games really were. Yeah, I was uh, for the Palace game. I was uh, I, I couldn't make that one either. I think that was a Thursday night from memory. Yeah, I was, it was, yeah. I was on a course 
um, down in Worcestershire somewhere, and there was a course dinner uh, that evening, and I think somebody thought I got a really bad stomach complaint because I kept making excuses to leave the table <laughs> and check, check the radio because you know, you know, the internet didn't didn't sort of like smartphones. Right. It wasn't as easy to catch up on scores, but I got like a, a transistor radio tuned to Radio Five, and at two nil, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. all good, good and good. It's all going to plan. We're going to be okay here, and then you go back and say, yeah, the, "Oh, and another chance missed by Palace." You know, yeah, they're so yeah. close. You think, "Hang on, it was two 0 Yeah, oh no, it's two <laughs> one. Oh no, please. Yeah. So I kept coming back to the table, increasingly ashen faced, <laughs> until the uh, until the final score. And you sort of think, "Right, that's it now. Come on, yeah, let's let's just sort this out, Rovers. <laughs> Make it happen." But that Newcastle game. Uh, you know, Tim Flowers' famous bottle comment and all yes. that sort of stuff. He pulled out a couple of absolute humdinging saves. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I often wonder today as well that if that game was refereed by modern standards, would Shearer have been allowed to, to rise and right. head home in the way that he did as yes. well? I suspect there are a number of modern referees who would have been, been very pernickety about it, or had it been referred to VAR, you know, so, oh, no, no, we're not having that. And that's a clear. <laughs> <laughs> an obvious right. error. It was all over the back of him. He really was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, that that was a the, that's a style of his play. Was he? He was physical, and he and he. Yeah, you know, it was kind of like I'm going to get to that ball, and, and you're not going to stop me, kind of thing. And that that was one of the features of his play, obviously. But it it was such a relief when that went in. But then we had seventy odd minutes again of utter terror every time yes. Newcastle crossed the halfway line. But crikey, what a great night that was! It was, that yeah, was the, absolutely amazing. The atmosphere was something else, wasn't it? As I said earlier, I think that, that's that's the night I felt that we did actually win the league. And you know, it's almost like the celebrations that night, well, there was that release of, right, well, we, you know, we've set the benchmark. We've, we've given, given ourselves something to defend. And there was, was always that nervousness about the final Sunday that at least yes. we were in, the, in pole position and we were making the running. And that's all that you can ask on that occasion. What about the, the football? Ian? Because say we look back as well, I mean, I think we get a little bit of stick for a supposed kind of pragmatic, functional football as opposed to the romantic Cavalier Manchester United. Do you think that's fair, looking back? Or I think as a fan myself, I think I thought we quite enjoyed it, of course, because you're winning games and I thought it was quite exciting. But certainly we had a, we got some stick in the medium from other fans that our football was a bit one-dimensional. I think I think there's an element of truth in it if I'm trying to be even-handed. Mm. But at the end of the day, if you're scoring three, four goals a game, and for a lot of that part of the season, when we did beat teams, we properly beat them. Uh, it depends mm. on your definition of exciting football, I guess, doesn't it? So I love watching Manchester City's lovely interplay and the, you know, the ticky-tacky passing and all that sort of good stuff. I love watching Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool with the heavy metal football and all that sort of good stuff. But that's now... Back then, I think the uh, the Premier League it was still very much an English game, a traditional yes. English game. And Dalglish's game plan was pretty simple, I think. Win the ball in midfield, get it to the wide men as quickly as you can, and the wide men will put dangerous crosses into yeah. a dangerous area. If that doesn't work, well, give it to Alan, and let's just wait and see if he does something. Yes. And so many times um, that season... He would he would pick the ball up in innocuous positions, and just turn and in the space of two or three strides, he's like, oh crikey, he's created space here. What's he going? Oh my god, he's hit it, and it would fly into the top corner. 
Right. Now, I, I'd, I'd never seen anything like this in a blue and white shirt before, where a right. guy could create something out of nothing. There'd be one or two central defenders ushering him into what he thought was a safe space, and it, he'd just turn and run and hit it. His athleticism, his, his power, and the strength of shot w- would create goals out of nothing. And we had a significant number of penalties as well. And I think that was from the number of forays that we got into the penalty area. Right. The number of times we had overlapping fullbacks and wingers and the likes of Sherwood as well bursting through from midfield, giving us the opportunity to put the defences under pressure. So I think that there's an element of truth, but it's an element of truth looking at it retrospectively. At the time, I thought we were an incredibly exciting team to watch for the reasons that you've stated. And yeah, for, to being a supporter and watching your side win week in and week out. Again, that was a very unusual uh, yes. feature of being a Blackburn Rover supporter where you turned up to a game expecting to win. Uh, and yes. that, That's an unusual mindset. And what, yeah, Short of last season, uh, I have to say, yeah, last season's promotion season, it, gave, it was a rekindling of that feeling that, well, there's nobody going to come here that we should be afraid of. Right. And that's, that was a throwback to 94-95. And you sort of think, we'll take on anybody here. And even though we lost at home to Manchester United, I mean, that's the, the famous Gerald Ashby game. Right. Yeah, there was, there was nobody that came to Ewood that you thought, I'm really concerned about this game. You felt you, you felt you were a match for anybody, I think. At least we had a way of playing. I think we had not many teams. We had a definite identity to our football at the time. I think at the time, not that many teams did. And like you say, you knew what you got with the Rovers. But, you know, I think wing players are always quite exciting, especially with Ripley and Wilcox were... Um, they were great to watch. Well, I thought it was tremendous as well yeah. that, that one of the wingers was, was bought, so kind of like as a finished article. But if I think about Jason Wilcox, I can remember going to watch a pre-season game at Bolton, and he was like christened Bolsa Boy, and he used to get a dreadful stick in that 4,000 holes fanzine for, for being Bolsa Boy, and yeah, this guy's never going to make it, never going to make it. Look at him, yeah, he gets knocked off the ball. And that guy took some fearful stick from, uh, right. well, yeah, depending on which half it was, whether it was the Nuttall Street enclosure or the Riverside, and he came back and he came back and he developed and he got better and he got better. And he, his delivery from that left-hand side was, was in, it was just unerringly accurate. There was, there was a hot spot from the edge of the six-yard box to the penalty spot. You thought, well, if you're going to curl something in there, one of exactly. Shearer or Sutton is going to be in there, and we've got a chance of scoring. So it was, it was to an extent, percentage football, but there's still a skill involved. I mean, David Beckham created a career out of moving the ball to one side and whipping in across, and everybody lauds him for it. Stuart exactly. Ripley and Jason Wilcox do it, and it's pragmatic football. So it does depend on the lens that you're looking through, I guess. It's interesting you mentioned Wilcox. I mean, I, I talked to him about this, you know, about why he got so much stick from the Rovers fans throughout his time there. But I think especially from the Riverside, he said. Um, yes. And I, and I wonder, and there's a newspaper article at the time written saying that maybe because Wilcox hadn't cost big money, because he hadn't cost any money, he was seen as a bit boring and a bit a bit underwhelmed by him. I didn't really appreciate how good he was. Do you think, do you think that might have been a fair criticism? Yeah, I think so. I, I guess the only thing I would say about the Riverside's treatment of, of Blackburn Rovers wingers, it extended way beyond just Jason right. Wilcox. Yes. I think we have, we have, we have a long and, and glittered history of, sort of yes. like giving stick to our own wingers for not getting past the man or you know, beating, the, beating the first defender. But I think, I think yeah, I think because he, he, I think at that time as well, so many people had seen uh, youngsters trying to come through because that, that was the Rovers' business model, wasn't it? You, you right. try, try and bring team players through from the, uh, 
um, well, it wasn't the academy then, but through the youth team, the reserves and all the rest of it. And yeah, there might have been a bit, you know, well, we've got all this money, we've signed Ripley on one side, what, what, are we, what are we, why are we persevering with this kid on the left-hand side? But yeah, he was actually pretty effective, and so many managers picked him and continued to pick him. He clearly had something. And I think he, I think he's yes. much maligned. I, I really do. I think he is one very him and Mark Atkins. I think are two great unsung heroes right. of that side, who, whose contributions didn't necessarily catch the eye. But if he took them out, they would have been very right. difficult to replace. I think it's interesting. Gary Neville said something about a few months ago on the lines of if you stay at one club all your career, as opposed to being a big signing, the fans will see you as you're starting out and you're not at your best. But when you sign them, you pay big money for somebody, they've developed somewhere else. And you, you, all the crap performances have kind of gone out of the way. So they arrive and they're already really good. But yeah. when you've been there all your career, you, you you remember when he's just breaking through, maybe it's not so good. But by the time he's 25, 26, it's fantastic. But you just can't shake off that old feeling, perhaps. Yes, yes. I, th- I, think, there's, I think there's an element of truth in that, certainly. I think, uh, um, yeah, if you think about the impact that, that Shearer had, when we when we signed him immediately, um, right? Yeah, you know, he he didn't so much hit the ground running as absolutely sprinting full pelt. Exactly, it, it was just an, ex, an extraordinary phenomenon, an absolute rarity. But then he sets a benchmark for everybody else that's playing in that team. Uh, and no matter who you are and where you've come from, it's kind of like, well, you know, well, why can't you come? Why aren't you as good as him? Why can't you contribute straight away? You know, and there were people being sniffy about Chris Sutton's contribution for quite a while. Because he wasn't Alan Shearer, so right. yeah, you, you're damned um, by that's a fair point. Yeah, the people that you're playing with, because it's almost like, well, we have a level of expectations. Oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> let's just raise that bar several notches because this guy's really rather good, and then everybody else that comes in has got to try and live up to that. But it, I, I always felt with that side, it was it was genuinely a team, but it, it was a team yes. with a focal point. Obviously, I mean, Shearer was right. fundamental to it. There's no getting away from that. It, well, then they say we were a one-man team. That's absolutely not the case because everybody mm. knew the job and everybody knew, had a, had a part to play. Uh, whether that was defensively in midfield or you know, the wide guys or the support striker, everybody had a right. job to do. And it, and if serving Shearer to enable him to score 30 goals and win the league was the job, that's the job that you did. So, exactly. yeah, I think we get a lot of stick for it, but um, yeah, I don't think it's it's warranted. I mean, talking about Shearer, I mean, would you say Shearer is the best player you ever saw at Blackburn? Oh, categorically. Yeah. Categorically. Isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, he's... To say yeah, there's this clear blue sky in second, third, fourth, yeah. and fifth place before you get down to anybody else who elders and betters will probably point to the likes of Ronnie Clayton and Brian Douglas and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. I, I never saw them play in right. the flesh of a Blackburn. They were England internationals of their day, and so clearly they were very good uh, players. From my perspective, you know, brought up on the thin gruel of the third division, right. winning promotion with Gordon Lee and winning promotion with Howard Kendall, and you know Simon Garner will always be a folk hero. But I'm sure Simon would be the first to, to mm. admit that he's nowhere near as good as as Alan Shearer. Yes. Yeah, we, we've we've seen some some decent players at Rovers over the years, but Shearer is just like head and shoulders and something else besides clear of the next best that I've seen. And do you think now that people kind of forget how good he was? I think it's it's kind of gone. The people that saw him in in the nineties, I think there was this, a, a, let's say, a proportion of our support that were reluctant to acknowledge how good he was when he went to Newcastle. Of course, I think, I think since he's retired, I think there's been that revisionist history piece, 
mm. sort of says, yeah, he was quite good, wasn't he? And he's no longer playing anymore, so we don't need to boo him when he comes back with Newcastle. Right. We can actually acknowledge he was pretty good. And he was back at the club a few weeks ago. There was um, the Hall of Fame event at Ewood, uh, and I understand that he, you know, he was absolutely... Um, first class company that evening and he signed autographs and had pictures yeah. taken of as many people as wanted and talked very affectionately about the club the thing that stuck in my throat a little bit when he when he was at Newcastle was he, he, he it felt a bit like he never wanted to acknowledge that he won the league with right. Blackburn and it, it kind of like he wished he won the only medal he won was at Blackburn not at Newcastle and I suspect that that's a frustration for him but equally, he could rightly turn around and sort of say, well, when I came back with Newcastle, you booed I, me. I remember that first time he came back, it was awful reception. Yeah. Terrible. But my, my philosophy at that time was when he came out to warm up, I stood up and applauded him. And when he went back in, that's it. You don't get any more applause from me now because yeah. you're a Newcastle player. But I'll not boo you. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, when he scored at the Darwin end and did that famous sort of salute, you're thinking, ah, oh, bugger. <laughs> so, you're wearing the wrong shirt. It's a great goal and a great salute, but that's the wrong shirt for me. So I, yeah. think, I think it's taken until he's retired for his contributions to have been reassessed. Uh, and I th- yeah, anybody who saw him in the 90s and turns around and says that, he, yeah, he, he wasn't the best player in the country by a country mile. I, I don't think he was watching the same guys. Another aspect, seeing of having the money and spending the money is that we'd always been quite a friendly and popular team. We're in the second division, quite everyone said we were homely, Blackburn, little old Blackburn, very nice. But when we started spending money and winning games, I think there was a bit more kind of um, resentment. I mean, what, what was it, even if you agree, what was it like suddenly other teams wanting Robbers to lose, especially, I think, in the promotion season, definitely. I think there's lots of kind of delight when it looked like we weren't going to go up. But oh, I think that continued a little bit, that we're no longer little old Rovers. Suddenly, we're a threat. Well, I think it's easier, and you see it, you see it in the game today, don't you? It's easier yes. to sort of take pleasure in clubs that spend a lot of money and don't make yes. it than if, than if a club is developing players. Uh, and again, I, I have a certain degree of sympathy for that. You know, the, the, the counter-argument to that is, but if it's your club and you've always been in the doldrums yes. or you've been in the doldrums for quite some time and you see this as the path to glory, then, then just yeah, ride the magic carpet. Because it, it was... I can remember nipping out at lunchtime and listening to, to the radio in the car because if we didn't sign somebody in a given week... It's almost like, well, what's going yes. on? Why have we not signed anybody this week? Particularly in that promotion season when Dalgleish was just bringing in, it seemed like, one or two players a week. And they were right. all good players. Um, so, yeah, I think that there was there was a bit of there was a bit of resentment. There's no doubt about that. I always think about when we signed Duncan Shearer from Swindon. And I yes. still insist to this day that we signed him just to stop Swindon being a, a pain to us in the promotion race. Because he, he never fitted into that team and never, never looked right. And we got rid... Clearly, as soon as as yes. soon as we went up, but it was almost like, well, we need to derail Swindon because they're on a good run of form. Uh, by Duncan Shearer. The other conspiracy, of course, is that we said by Shearer and he bought the wrong one. But I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think that's that's one of those stories that's handed down from father to son with little substance. Once we got in the Premier League, though, I think at that time there was a grand swell of anybody but United. Yes. Uh, and I was living in Birmingham at the time, and Villa uh, chased them hard the one season. And certainly there was there was a feeling that, well, I don't want United to win. If Villa are going to win, that's tremendous. And then it was almost like, well, it's our turn now. And it's almost like the Villa fans were saying, well, yeah, you've got to take them on now. And it was kind of like the rest of the league against Manchester United. So I think we were okay that season. But once we'd won the league, then we were part of that establishment. We were part of... 
the clubs to be shot down, I guess. Do you think we, with hindsight, of course, winning the league, we let it slip too easily? We, we, do you think we could have built yes. to become maybe not a mega club, but certainly an established member? No, we, uh, they, we squandered. We squandered an yes. opportunity that will not come around again. I mean, whatever it was, and I don't know whether the full story will ever come out, but whatever it was that made Dalglish walk away, mm. uh, I think I think in, in our heart of hearts, we all knew that that was it. That was kind of like going to be really difficult. It was an obvious thing to do to make Ray Harford the manager yeah. for continuity and all that sort of good stuff. But bless him, he was never a manager. He was always a coach. He was never a manager. And I think that showed the following season where it, yes. we, the level of performance just dropped by you know 10% straight away. And we were, the, the quality of the players that we brought in, I think, we, was it Matty Holmes that we signed? He was only saying that summertime, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, it's to, to look back and now say, so, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's not what yes. happens at top-class football clubs. When you're at the top, you sort of say, right, well, who's the weakest link in this team? I need to improve that position, no matter how good they were the previous year. I mean, just imagine if we had signed Zidane. Just imagine. Exactly. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's a whole different parallel parallel screen, but I think Dalglish stepping down, that, that was a major signal that this yes. was a different club. And that players that would have considered signing for Blackburn Rovers under Dalgleish, Ray Harford was just never going to be the same draw. Right. And then the siren calls start going around Graham Lasso and Hendry and Shearer, and you're thinking we're going to struggle to hold this together. And we, we were poor for large parts of that following season. We recovered somewhat. Yeah, especially with. Yeah, we actually had a couple of really, really good results. I think both against Nottingham Forest that sort of yes. linger in the memory, but they were very much the exceptions. And it, it did sort of say, well, this is you know, this is what this side could have been, but we 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 handed the initiative back at a time when we, we really needed to go on. So as I say, I don't know whether anybody will ever know the full story, but the right. the symbolism of Dalgleish stepping down reduced our appeal Definitely. instantaneously, and then that abysmal Champions League campaign. Right. Kind of like cemented it and sort of said, "Nah, they're one season wonders." That's that. Watching kind of things on TV now and remembering at the time, so in Blackburn, the amount of people, not even on match day, used to walk around Blackburn with, with the Rovers shirt on, is hard to imagine now. But it really was so many people. I think even and not just in Blackburn, maybe in the surrounding areas too, a little bit. I mean, do you think we could have attracted fans from? other parts of the country. I think it was starting to happen. It, it was. Um, and, and Rovers got quite a bit of stick for that as well. I think when they tried to like lay on coaches to, to right. bus, bus fans in, yeah. it was kind of like, yeah, who are you? <laughs> this, is, this is our yeah. heartland. But we, we, yeah, I mean, you could drive... I say I lived in Birmingham at the time and I'd be coming up the M6 and you, it wouldn't be unusual to see some fans that are sort of like chartered a minibus or a coach or whatever to be going up north. I know there was quite a lot from Lancaster, Morecambe, the Lakes... Yes. Uh, that would travel down to Ewood quite regularly, and you know the, the number of coaches that would park behind the Blackburn end. It really, it really was quite something. But this is that part of Lancashire is, is a very, very competitive area. Yeah, look, yeah, and every club in that area knows mm. just how difficult it is. I think that concept of going to watch Preston one week, Blackburn the week after, right. um, has long since died. And I think you know you look at Accrington Stanley now, how they're trying to compete. With, with everything that's ra- round and about, and they're sort of saying, how can we get our gates from 1,700 to 2,500? That's their target kind of thing. Uh, Rovers, Rovers, I felt, have always had a core support, 
come what may, of about ten to twelve thousand. Mm-hmm. If you're doing well, you'll get you'll add another two or three thousand walk-ons. Getting into the Premier League made people who maybe were just interested in football take a little bit more interest and, yeah. and start to come down. But let, let's let's not kid ourselves. Even in that season, it's rare that the ground was sold out. Certainly right. in the home section. Yeah, because Blackburn is a town. It's yeah. you know, to, to get twenty five thousand Blackburn fans into into a stadium in that context is is a, is a tough ask. It needs it needs quite a lot of things to to happen to, to get it to fall into place. It's been a conundrum for as long as I've been a fan mm. as to how to get more people to to get into the ground. But certainly for that for that golden five years, shall we say, from winning promotion through to nineteen ninety six. Uh, that was that was as good a time as as there was to be a Rovers fan and and to see youngsters coming through. Yes, um, I don't know whether there there's, too, there's many many more competing attractions these days for the generation and watching football is a lot more expensive now than it was in the early nineties. I think it's hard for families to bring kids in, and I think that that is what will burst the football bubble mm-hmm. eventually. But at that time, that was about as good as it got. I think. What do you think? As opposed to the Rovers, in football in general, what would Jack Walker's legacy be to football? Because, you know, some people said he's the one who started all this crazy spending. Or um, do you think it's a bit different? Do you think over time, what would his legacy be to English football and British football? Well, I don't think he was the one that started it. Uh, I think he saw where the trend was going. But if you think back to Derby County had uh, Lionel Pickering. That's right, yes. Wolves had Jack Hayward. Yes. We had Jack Walker, never knighted, unlike Jack Hayward. Um, so there were, there were a number of clubs that were starting to to think about how they could bring finance in and, mm. and, and tap into local local businessmen. So I'm not. I wouldn't say necessarily that we started it. I would say categorically we were the first team to be successful doing it. Mm. And I think there's been many many instances subsequently of clubs trying to buy success. Having money is one thing, using it wisely is another entirely. And one of the legacies of Jack Walker's investment in Blackburn naturally is, is just the ground, the training ground, and all the rest right. of it. But effectively, the club got his money back. Because if you think about the players that he signed, the fees that they were sold for, of course, if, yes. if you'd have been a business angel and you sort of said, right, I'm prepared to give you £50 million to spend on footballers, and when you make a profit, I want repaying... You'd have made an absolute fortune. Yes, just on just yeah. on you know Shearer, Sutton, Lasso, Berg, that that probably sure covered his investment. Yeah. Well, Walker Walker's legacy was probably to, to make people sort of sit up and sort of say, well, using money here, it can buy success, and it can give away to the smaller teams, not the big city clubs, mm-hmm. uh, to to compete. But now. Yeah, the, the bar has been raised so many times that now we've got actual nation states owning football right. clubs. How do you compete with PSG and Manchester City? Yeah, even Abramovich now looks a pauper by comparison. So, yes. you know, it, it's, it's it's just a whole different uh, enterprise. So you, don't, so you don't think Jack Walker distorted the transfer market? I think, well, I suppose he did. Because we signed the players, and if he hadn't have distorted the transfer market, we would never have signed those players. Um, But if you sort of say, when Rottingham Forest were prepared to sell Roy Keane, if it hadn't been us trying to buy Roy Keane with Manchester United, would Liverpool, would Leeds at the time say? I'm sure there'd have been somebody else 
it, it's, a, it's a hard one to call, yeah. isn't it? You can't sort of say. So, yeah, it, it did distort it to the extent that it, it made Manchester United sit up and take notice that there was somebody on the doorstep that they had to compete with. And I think it probably made fans of clubs like Liverpool, who had serially underperformed, look across the way and be rather jealous of what was going on because we, we had a good manager and we were signing good players. But as I say, when we sold them, we got our money back. So it wasn't squandered. There were investments. It wasn't paying a 29 or a 30-year-old £10 million a year to come and then getting nothing for him at the end. We were signing 21, 22, 23-year-olds, getting the best four or five years of their yeah. careers and then making and a profit when we sold them. And that actually is the business model that the club needs to follow today. Yes. I mean, it's interesting, even with this year, is, uh, the, the transfer fee, you know, 12 months earlier, Liverpool signed Dean Saunders for not much less, £2.9 million. Yeah. And it shows, no, well, just if, if you spend it in that way, we, we signed a world-class player and you didn't. And yeah. they almost cost the same. Having the resources is one thing. Using yes. them wisely is, is totally different. And I think where Ray Harford definitely added value to that partnership was he had a short stint in charge of England under 21. Exactly. Yes. So no, I think yes. he'd become... Um, he got early notice of who the, ne- the next young generation was. So imagine now sort of having identified Jaden Sancho, Phil Foden and the likes of that. Right. Uh, and and coach them first hand. So I said, yeah, I think we yeah. can, I think we can pick these guys up for like six hundred thousand. Well, yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect yeah, that's what does. what we're trying yeah. to do today. But unfortunately, your, your six hundred thousand Graham Lassos are now yes. the seven million pound Ben Brerisons. And also, other teams now have these huge squads yeah. as well. Yeah. The Championship is is yeah. now possibly the most interesting league. Um, yes. In, possibly in Europe. I think for the way it ebbs and flows and the different pressures that, that are brought to bear, but it's got to be one of the hardest um, yes. to, to, to get out of when you're competing with clubs that have had parachute payments. I mean, we had them and we squandered yeah. them. That's our fault. But it, it, yeah, coming up from League One into the Championship and then sort of saying, right, I want to take on somebody who's coming down from the Premier League and look at Sunderland in League One. Right, yeah, so, they, they got yes. relegated with like sort of thirty million pounds of the parachute payments or something like that. <laughs> yeah, how on earth do, do you know, Accrington Stanley compete with that? But yeah, then you look at Luton Town and say, well, there is a way. It's not all about money. It's actually about how you you identify and you coach and you develop and you build a squad and you build a team and you have a philosophy. And, and to, yeah, to a greater or lesser extent, that's what we did back in the 90s. We, we sort of had a, a clear vision about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it, and we executed it brilliantly. Fantastic timing. Well, thanks very much for that. It's really interesting. You know, I'd like to talk more, but the more I talk, the more I work. <laughs> it's <laughs> always know, a pleasure to talk about winning the league, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, yeah. It's hardly a chore. You're listening to the BRFCS podcast, the only podcast approved to cover the 2018-2019 season by the New York City Rovers. Don't forget to check out www.brfcs.com. Thanks, Ian. Great to talk to you. And thanks and for you, your time. You're welcome. Cheers. 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 Thanks, Ian. Good day. Bye-bye. By the way, massive thank you to Joe Bamford, uh, BRFCS forum member, and his band The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music used in this episode. I hope you'll look them up on Facebook, and if they're playing live near to you, well, go and see them. 